0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We've got so many things that human beings can be afflicted with. But every once in a while, you hit on something and you think, yeah, that's, that's great. And Kidney Health Month has begun for the month of March. And they have a six-degree challenge going. I love this because it puts things into tremendous perspective. If you sit down and you start thinking about all the people you know, it should not take long before you realize you know somebody, probably very closely, who is dealing with a kidney issue, who has dealt dealt with a kidney issue, and so that's what they're highlighting. The six degree challenge basically shows that if you kind of go that Kevin Bacon route of six degrees from this person to this person to this person, by the time you hit six, you'll know somebody who is dealing with something to do with their kidneys. Try it. And so, what they're asking is that on social media, you take a picture of you holding up six, six fingers. Or a thumb and five fingers. And you take that picture and then you tell the story of your connection to it. And the awareness raised, yeah, it's going to make a difference. And that's going to affect a lot of lives. Because we don't realize how quickly things can actually turn. You will remember Christina Howran for her reporting work here in London, Ontario. Well, she's now a reporter in Toronto for City TV. And she had... Kidney issues in her family, so it was in the family's genetics, but still had no idea where kidney issues would take her life and how much they would threaten her life. Well, she's had quite a road and joins us now to talk about that road, to tell that story. But, Christina, for anybody who knows your story, they probably would like to know something before we actually get to it. How are you doing right now?
1: I am doing so well, Mike. Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's, um, it's crazy what a working kidney can do for you because I literally feel 10 years younger than I did, you know, two years ago.
0: Isn't that wild? Now, you're going to be able to describe kind of how things were feeling a couple of years ago, but let's even go beyond that, because you ended up being a kidney transplant recipient. And I think one of the things that we should probably outline is it doesn't mean that they take one of your kidneys away and put in a new one or both of your kidneys away that weren't functioning properly and put in a new one. How many kidneys do you have in your body right now?
1: Um, I currently have three kidneys, two that don't work at all, and one that is in my stomach, kind of pelvic area, attached to my um, femoral artery, so it's actually attached kind of like around my leg area, Um, and that's the one that works. So I've got two in the back that don't work and one in the front that does.
0: And is there anything special that you can or cannot do because of that?
1: Um. At the beginning, yes. So they recommend, you know, at the beginning you, you avoid contact sports or anything that may have, you know, a flying object that could hit you in the, in, the, in the area where your new kidney is, in particular because, you know, your back is a little bit, they're better protected in the back than they are in the front. But as time goes on, everything will be the same.
0: We're talking with City TV reporter Christina Howren, who you may remember from great work in reporting in London, Ontario, before heading off to Toronto. But Christina is also someone who has a pretty powerful story. And I think we've outlined little tidbits of it right now, the fact that you have one functioning kidney and two non-functioning kidneys in your body. Let's go back a couple of years, because this story is absolutely remarkable. You were feeling kind of tired, kind of worn down, that sort of thing. How were you feeling two years ago? So
1: for a couple of months, I had just been feeling absolutely exhausted. And at first I thought, oh, this is jet lag. I'd just gotten back from a trip. Um, then I had, like, really dry, itchy skin. Like, I was so itchy that I would scratch until i bled. And the exhaustion just wouldn't go away. And it just kept on getting worse and worse and worse. Um, so I got my blood pressure read just by happenstance at a at a grocery store, and it was, you know, in the stroke zone. So I was like, well, this is kind of odd, but maybe it's the job. You know, we've got a lot of competing deadlines. Uh, it's a pretty stressful job. I'm tired, but, you know, I'll make an appointment to the doctor. So I went to the doctor's office. They ordered blood work, and um, I had been really struggling to just get through a day. I mean, I remember sitting at, the de- at my desk thinking, like, we need a nap room. Um, every day. And, uh, I was out on a story and, um, we were about to head to another interview when I had two phone calls, two missed calls from my doctor's office. And, you know, when does your doctor's office actually call you and say, call me back directly? So I did and they said, you have to go to emergency. Your kidneys are failing. You are in, uh, end stage kidney failure. So my cameraman took me to the emergency department and lo and behold I was I had between six and eight percent kidney function and this is something that had gone undetected, which may have been happening for years or even months. And all of a sudden here I was at the very end of the lives of my kidneys.
0: You were down to six to eight percent. Mm-hmm.
1: So they were amazed that I had even been working or you know, that I still had, had the energy to get out of bed, because usually it's a progression, so it's usually something that's caught, like, in the 20 to 30 range. Um, but for me, it was, like, a very steep decline that happened very rapidly over just a couple of months.
0: We're talking. So, we're talking with Christina Howren from City TV, and we're talking about what she has gone through over the last couple of years. And if you missed the very beginning, Christina says she's feeling absolutely fantastic right now, which is the good news. But two years ago, that wasn't the case. So all of a sudden, your life, no doubt, changes. What changed in your life at that moment?
1: Oh, everything. Um, so. All plans were put on hold. Um, I remember sitting in the in the emergency room, just crying because I knew that I was going to have to go on dialysis, um, which is a a treatment that people do either hemo, which cleans your blood directly, or peritoneal, which cleans um, which which does filter out some of the toxins in your body, but uh, through your stomach or your neck, depending on what you uh, opt for. Um, And I knew that that was going to you know, change everything about my life, my ability to travel, my ability to work properly, um, my family, my relationships, my friendships, even, because I knew I'd be tied to a machine and that the wait time, while people think it's only three to five years, depending on where you live and your blood type, I was told that I was looking at a seven to 10 year wait for a um, kidney transplant.
0: And I wouldn't have survived. Yeah, that, that's how quickly did that enter your mind?
1: Um, well, as soon as I found out about the seven to 10 years and the, the physicians were very honest with me and they said like, you know, your, your chance of making it that long are not going to work. So I had a really great nephrologist who, um, we tried to stave off me going on dialysis because it's not a great way to live. And, um, we were hoping that my mom could be a living donor and she immediately started the workup, but while she was, you know, she was ruled out, um, but we couldn't even wait for that. So while she was going through the workup to find out, you know, if she could be a donor, because they test you pretty extensively, like cardio tests and, you know, it's not just blood type. Okay, here we go. They, they, they do quite a bit. Um, they had to start me on dialysis. So every single night for about nine to ten hours, every single night, I was hooked up to a machine, um, at home. So it was a, it was a big, ordeal. I I had a whole room, so an office space that had been converted into a storage area, because the amount of gear that you need in your house to have a dialysis machine at home um, is just phenomenal. So that's what I did for about nine months, and it was grueling. I had to change my work schedule. I couldn't go to certain stories. I couldn't work late because I needed that time on the machine. I couldn't start early because I needed the time on the machine. I couldn't go out with friends. I couldn't go to a lot of social functions. I remember being at my nephew's second birthday party and just not even being able to climb up the stairs to uh, the second floor at one point. So it's, it absolutely changed my life. I was very fortunate though because while my, my mom was ruled out, my second cousin, Christine, um, who's in her mid fifties, she said, let me get tested and I'm, I'm O negative. So is she. Uh, which is the universal donor, but as a recipient of, of um organs or blood, you can only take that. You can only take O. So she um she went through the test and within three months she was granted a okay, you're ready to go. And last June, um actually the day that the Raptors won the championship, we had a, our kidney transplant. So it, it all happened very quickly in terms of the transplant itself. Um, but it, it was life changing because when they, when they did like the day of my transplant, the physicians told my cousin flat out, I was at less than 4% function despite being on dialysis every day, despite radical changes to my diet. Um, no cheese, no pickles, no black pop. Um, really. I would always watch my salt content, but you know, really minimizing that. And, uh, they said that there was a high likelihood
0: I wouldn't have made it to 2020. Holy cow. It's Kidney Health Month. Look for the hashtag Six Degree Challenge. We'll get to that in just a moment. We're talking with Christina Howrun, who was a reporter in London, moved to Toronto, reporter in Toronto, and then wasn't feeling well. Turned out her kidneys were failing. She went in for a kidney transplant thanks to a cousin of hers who ended up being a match. Otherwise, she may not have made it to 2020. Christina, those are the words that you left us with. And uh, that's that's kind of a, a shocking thing to hear. And yet, when you woke up from surgery after your kidney transplant, is it true that you heard cheering?
1: It was. It was 100% true. Um, because the Raptors had just moments earlier won the championship, and the hospital that I was at, uh, University Health Network, it's fairly close to, um, I guess, the Scotiabank Centre. People had already started running down the streets of Toronto, uh, screaming and cheering, and you could hear it from the hospital room. Uh, Ten floors up, or however many floors up I was, I, I don't remember, I could hear it all, and it was like, what's going on? And it was like, oh, I'm awake. <laughs> you know, you just... This is what's happening. It was like, oh, I'm being greeted, um, because everything was a success. But, you know, I was pretty drugged up at the time. But yeah, it was, it was actually pretty awesome. And at the same time, you know, you could see all the nurses and the medical staff that were in the, um, and the halls were all clapping and cheering anyways, because, you know, the Raptors had just won.
0: (laughs) And another successful kidney transplant had been performed. You and your cousin, what did that relationship become when the two of you began this kind of a journey?
1: Um, It it was very different. There, there is a considerable age gap between us. So, um, you know, she was playing, she was getting ready to go out on dates and I was playing with small dolls. Right. So, we never really had a chance to hang out. I always looked up to her. Um, I always wanted, you know, to look like her when I grew up and to have her same fashion sense when I grew up. But, you know, there is a is a big age gap. Um, and that just it wiped away. So we found out, you know, she has five boys, and she said, you know, you are like my daughter now. And Granted, the age gap isn't sufficient enough for me to be her daughter, but it's like she's my big, big, like my big sister now. Um, out of my family, we discovered that, you know, we're, we're very similar in a lot of ways and ways that you wouldn't, you know, little silly things. Like, both of us were worried about, well, what are we going to do about our hair? Because we're going to be in so much pain while we're in the hospital. Like, who's going to come and fix that? And, you know, are they going to, should we do our nails before we go in? Because we're not going to be able to take care of this stuff. And little silly things that you worry about um, that maybe other people in our family or most people probably wouldn't, but we were concerned about. Um, yeah, it's, it's just changed. When I when I got readmitted to the hospital for just, like, some minor work, they, they just wanted to monitor me because my levels was raised at the end of the summer. Um, she sent me a text saying, hey, how are you doing? Like, and I didn't tell anybody because I didn't want to worry anybody that I was back in the hospital. But she just said that she had, like, this feeling overcomer that she needed to reach out to me right then and there and check in on me. So I feel like... Um, yeah, it's it's a really different relationship now. I'm, I'm, like, she's my hero, but she's also I feel like my sister.
0: Have you ever asked her what made her want to do this?
1: Uh, Christine is such a giving person. She is so so generous. Um, she actually went through the process several years ago to donate a kidney to her father-in-law, and uh, she just like at the very last minute, or you know, a couple weeks before the transplant was to happen. Uh, a, a family member, a blood relative of his stepped up. And blood relatives are better. Um, you have a better chance of success, although living transplants are your best chance of success. And so they they stepped up, and so he took that kidney, and she said that, you know, she was already prepared to do this for her father-in-law. So although, you know, several years had passed, if they would take her, then she was willing to do it for me. She's, she's She's very big on giving back to everybody. That's just the way that Christine is.
0: Well, it is just a wonderful story to know you are feeling so much better. Life is basically back to normal.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, I'm, everything's been great.
0: Yeah. Good, good. And now we get to talk about the Six Degree Challenge, which, as we mentioned, it takes about six degrees of separation to find someone who you know who has dealt with kidney disease and all that we are being asked to do is post pictures on social media throwing up six fingers so five on one hand one on the is there do you do three and three do you do two and four does it matter
1: it doesn't matter at all um the idea is to just show that you know there are only six degrees of separation between you and you don't have to even look that far obviously um in many cases but yeah it's really easy you throw up six fingers you make sure you hashtag six degree challenge you challenge other people uh to do the same because one in ten canadians actually suffer from kidney disease so if you look at our population that's that's over three million canadians that are suffering with kidney disease that you know, may eventually need to go on dialysis may eventually need a transplant um may not be able to work or live their lives to their, to their fullest because of this. And there's some very sad stories about babies that are born like this. And, um, you know, it's, it's not the easiest disease. And it's not something that people can always see, right? It's something that is very silent and often very invisible until you hit the end point like we saw with me. So, yeah, it's, it's a really easy challenge. And the idea is to just raise awareness and to... Ultimately, make people be a little bit more aware, you know, of a your kidneys' function and the good work that the Kidney Foundation does do in terms of supporting people and and helping to uh, to bolster research in the area and advocate for more research and for kidney patients.
0: Christina, thanks so much for all the time today, and keep feeling amazing.
1: Thank you so much, Mike. Take good care,
0: Christina Howren, joining us to talk about Kidney Health Month. So use that hashtag. That hashtag, very easy to find, very easy to use, the six Degree Challenge. If you want to go back and hear about getting out of China as the coronavirus outbreak began, we spoke with Darren Keenan about that very thing, and he outlined the entire story. And some of it involves some pretty good tips if you're going to be traveling internationally. Darren said at one point, y- you have to be ready to go, depending on what country you're in. And that involves having your passports, having your papers, and having American money that you don't spend thinking, yeah, really like to order out tonight, or, or order in, I guess. Uh, let's, let's use that American money that we got. Don't do that. That American money stays with the passports and the documents, and they're just ready to go. They're even in a bag. And if you have to go, you have to go. They got a call at four thirty one morning that the city of Wuhan was going to be closed. No one in, no one out. They got out before that happened. It was due to happen at about 10 in the morning. They left. That's how quickly they had to get out. But they did it. And Darren told that story, and you can find that on the London Live podcast if you go back to last week. Now, we also got a chance to speak with Darren about living in China and some of the differences because there are a lot of people who are scratching their heads over, you know, how is it that this new coronavirus got to the point that it did? You know, what are the differences between what we would see as everyday life and what goes on in a country under communist rule like China? And we had a chance to talk with Darren about all of that, and first off, about what took him and his family to China in the first place.
2: Well, I am an English teacher. I'm an ESL instructor, and uh, I need to teach. And it's like, you know, you can teach part-time in London, but you can't teach full-time. It's quite difficult. And I was a substitute teacher for the Thames Valley. I was a teacher who worked part-time in uh, some language centers in London. And then basically I said to my wife, hey, let's travel. We've been doing this for 17 years. Let's continue it. Let's take our son, take our daughter, take ourselves, and go see a different part of the world. And that's what basically we decided why. We'll go to China and teach there. Okay. When would that have been? Oh, goodness. How long ago was that, About
0: three years ago? Yeah, it was about three years ago. Okay. And you arrive, and you get into the Chinese culture, the Chinese way of life, all that sort of thing. Yeah, you do arrive, and it's a shock.
2: Because, you know, you're not in Kansas anymore. It's like, this is a whole different society. Visually, it looks the same. Modern buildings, you know, modern restaurants, cars that are that are new. But it's like a giant facade. As soon as you go behind it, it's all different. It's like you'll see it in front of you, you'll look at it, and you'll feel familiar. You'll feel some kind of familiarity with it. But as soon as you start to, to look into this society, look into these cities and, you know, wander around these places you suddenly realize this isn't what it looks like. And that, 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 that's what's uncomfortable because it feels familiar. You go into a restaurant, you see lots of pictures. That's not our food. <laughs> that's hard, yeah. It's like um, you'll look at a restaurant and then you go around the back of the restaurant and it's the third world. There'll be a bag and you'll see the bag moving. And I'm, I'm naturally inquisitive, so I have to go over and look at the bag. And there are hundreds of toads squirming about in the bag. Uh, then you go to the next restaurant, and you'll see a bag that's moving around, and there's snakes slithering about in the bag. And you don't want to open the bags, but you, you can see them. And that's what I mean. It's like it's like a giant facade that looks like how we live in London or in Vancouver or in Toronto. But as soon as you start to investigate what's behind it. That's where you see this is a different culture. It's different. Everything's a different way of life. It's different preparation, different hygienic standards. And that's when you realize you're not, like I say, you're not in Kansas anymore.
0: Yeah. As you stay, does that pattern continue where more and more things that you go and, and deal with, whether it's not just restaurants, maybe it's health care, maybe it's washing your car. <sighs> does that continue to happen?
2: Yeah. But in some respects, you know, we are foreigners who live there. We have, you know, we're independent of the healthcare system. We have, you know, insurance. So we tend to go to, you know, like a Western hospital.
0: And that exists.
2: Yeah, they exist. Just like Chinese people can go there as well. But if you're not part of that system, it's like you're in a Chinese hospital, you know, a Chinese system, you know, the Chinese medical system, the Chinese legal system. You're in the, the Chinese social system. And if you don't speak the language... It's a completely different experience. Like I say, their system is based on a system of governance that's very old-fashioned in the modern world. So for us, you just don't walk up to the counter like in, you know Ontario service and ask for help. There's a whole rigmarole you got to go through to get somewhere. So it's like um, that's when you see like you know the, like I see, the outward facade of modernity, and you see the buildings, and you see the counters, and you see the people. But they have this antiquated system of, of, of doing things that y- you can't fathom because we're just not part of it. Yeah, we just never, we've never experienced it before.
0: You mentioned the language. Is that something that you can pick up over time Mandarin or, or it, was it Mandarin that was predominantly? Yeah, there's two languages.
2: There's Mandarin and Cantonese they're very difficult
0: yeah that's just it
2: yeah you can't it's like my son you know he's tried to learn it for two years and it's hard it's like it's a different it's completely different to english you know i was as a, a language instructor speaking now <laughs> <laughs> yeah our, our our phonetic system is all different and it's like there's this tonal so it's like how high is your voice how low is your voice you get that wrong, you've just insulted someone, and they're not happy, which my son did, and they don't get it, and they're not happy when that happens.
0: That is Darren Keenan about living in China. A year ago, if we said, hey, Darren is living in Wuhan, China, you'd say, oh, that's that's pretty neat. Yeah, Wuhan, China, where's that? Now we know more about it. Now we've heard of it, and now it concerns a lot of people because of the new coronavirus. And Darren and his family found out at 4.30 in the morning that the city of Wuhan was going to be shut down one day. Nobody in, nobody out, by about 10 a.m. They got out and they went city to city to city to city. And that's what you can hear in the podcast version of our interview. But we also talked with Darren about living in China and some of the differences, some of the challenges. He talked about language and we continued talking about the impact that his kids felt in living with China and what life was like for them? Well, they
2: went to um, a, a school that's run by the, uh, the BC Ministry of Education. So it's like we work in an international school where the high school basically run by the BC Ministry of Education and the middle school is um, for Chinese nationals, you know, for, for domestic students. And then there's the foreign national school where the the children of the teachers and the children of, like, you know, diplomats and, you know, businessmen, business people, and individuals in China will send their kids. Okay. So it's like they're getting an international education, but it's not quite to the same standard as Canada, I have to admit.
0: Things like buying groceries. We go to the grocery store. We look around, we say, hey, this is on sale this week. I think I'll get an extra one of those. And you put that in your cart and you make your way around and eventually you get to the checkout. You put everything up and they check it out and you make a little transaction and done. What is it like in China? Well, if we do that, we could end
2: up with rotten egg cookies. Okay. Yeah. You can end up with stinky tofu bread. It it doesn't work. Because you don't know what the packaging is. You don't know what the pricing is. You don't know if it's on sale. It's like you don't know what the ingredients are.
0: Is it bought at a market as opposed to a grocery store? Or is it is it similar
2: to a grocery store? Well, they have grocery stores. You know, they do have Walmart and they do have um, some. Like
0: actual Walmart's yeah, says yeah, Walmart? Yeah,
2: They have Walmart as Walmart. But that doesn't mean what's in that Walmart food-wise is the same as what's in Canada. Sure. And it's… Ugh. Moving bags. Yeah. It's like… <laughs> it's like chicken heads, feet, those kinds of things in the meat department. And it's not appetizing when mm. you go there. It doesn't look inviting. And that's that's an issue some for some of us because you'll go to the place and it doesn't make you want to purchase something there. And even when you need to purchase like pork chops or something.
0: Yeah. When you look at kind of making your way through and and finding food to eat, how do you do it then in order to get something? Because, hey, you have younger children. Yeah. Uh, chicken fingers are usually the staple of young kids, and yeah. it takes a little while for the taste buds to grab onto anything else. What did you eat? Well, you know, you eat a lot of rice.
2: It's, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> you eat a lot of noodles. Every part of China has a speciality, if you will. They, you know, it's got their own particular cuisine. And there are hundreds and hundreds of different types of cuisine in China. And we happened to live in Wuhan, and their cuisine was based around noodles. They're famous for, for Chinese noodles, and they're famous for really, really spicy food. But there's lots of different local cuisine as well, if you will. And there are lots of different uh, cuisines from different parts of China. I was really fond of Muslim food in China, and that was a bit more palatable. It was a little bit easier to eat. It wasn't as spicy it, um, the ingredients were a little bit more common you know you could recognize what you're eating and the sauces were familiar but for my for my son for example it was hard yeah it's like there's fast food and you soon come to rely on that but that's not nutritious yeah it doesn't work it's like you've got to go back to the basics you know if you see a, a market you buy those fruits and vegetables and you've got to cook everything from scratch you can't really rely on packaged food because you don't know what it is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the fish. Fish seem to be the same, but they're not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. They are not that the seems same. to be a theme. Seems to be, yeah. b- but, but it's, it's not. not. Yeah. How about transit? What is transit like? Mm. Good?
2: Yeah. The transit systems are actually pretty good. They've got high speed rail and that's really, really um convenient. Um they have, but you know, they've got lots of folks on scooters which is not convenient. You know, the the sidewalk seems to function as a road half the time. It's um you have bicycles still in many places. Uh traffic rules are there, That doesn't mean people follow them. <laughs> so, you know, you're always looking over your shoulder when you cross the street in case someone doesn't break on a red light, in case somebody goes through a red light because they just might. Yeah, they did they, not they just might they do. <laughs> and so it's really the number of times where I've had to grab my kid. You know, yeah. Wow. It's like to hold them back because the, the children have to learn too. And my son's only 10. So it's like you'll be crossing a, a, an intersection and, you know, you have the, the right of way, but not there. The car has the right of way. So it, that is really irritating.
0: Hmm. Whatever is biggest, most powerful rules. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. We are talking about what it's like to live in China with Darren Keenan. He and his family were over in China and we mentioned Wuhan province and everyone now knows Wuhan province because that's where the new coronavirus appeared for the very first time. Is it possible that if that outbreak had not occurred, that you would still be in China and be there indefinitely?
2: Uh, It is possible. I wouldn't be there indefinitely, but there's a reason we went there. There are several reasons. So, you know, those reasons are still valid. It's like if it wasn't for the coronavirus, yeah, we'd still be there. You know, if the city wasn't under quarantine, we would still be there. It's like even though it's difficult to live there and culturally it's different, you know, the language is hard. The rules are completely different. It's still interesting yeah, as a culture. I mean, the language is interesting. The culture is interesting. The, everything about the architecture is interesting. It's all unique and different. But, so, you know, you learn to
0: adjust. Wonderful we, experience. Yeah, 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 Was it easier for your wife who had actually come from a Soviet background to maybe understand some of the the practices, some of what was going on societally? Yeah, I would have to say yes,
2: because she, she intuitively and instinctively from her childhood, you know, these memories are still there of, of, her, of her upbringing and how the government would interfere in their lives and schooling and education and things. She knew instinctively what these kids were going through. You know, she would see little boys and little girls and little red scarves. I might know, ah, they're young pioneers, but that's What does that just, mean? Yeah, what does it mean exactly? What does that mean? Yes, to me, it's a picture in a book from history class, you know, in grade nine. But she understands and she she still understands what it means as a kid in a classroom when that teacher is talking to you, when they're speaking to you. It's the same narrative. It's the same story. It's the same propaganda. It's the same, you know, hooey <laughs> that the government gives you, you know, and the Soviet state. But those kids grow up believing it. And it's like, so, you know, it's like as a foreigner living and working there and as a family that, li- that lived there, we have a function as well, right? You know, we bring a part of Canada with us. And some of the kids pick up on it, but not all of them.
0: That is Darren Keenan, what it's like to live in China. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.